the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? My name is Reverend Ann Dunlap. I'm a UCC pastor doing community ministry for racial justice and solidarity here in Denver, Colorado. As always, you can learn more about me at FierceRevRemedies.com. And I also coordinate the faith work for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. And this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. I'm grateful to be with you today, wherever you are listening to this right now. So where am I today? Where am I feet planted today. So again, I'm in my friend's backyard recording studio with the beautiful blue paint on the walls with my shoes off and feet on the hardwood floor. It's cold and gray outside today, a drizzly like snow coming off and on. And I don't know about you, but I could have used some sun today. All the plants still seem snuggled down for winter, though the trees are showing tiny buds. And this time, the chickens were much more interested in the compost than in me. So how about you? Where are you? Where are you on the planet? What's the land, the geography around you? Whether you're inside or outside, find a way to connect to the land around you in this moment. With your senses. Even if only with your breath. Whether it's plains or mountains, bayous, rivers, oceans, deserts, sun, snow, rain, warmth, moon, stars, fallow fields, tiny tree buds, lush greenness, herbs, birds, squirrels. Where are you? Are you remembering right now that you are not a disembodied mind, but a fleshy, tender body that exists in this particular place where you are? Where are you? Who are the indigenous people who have always belonged and still belong to the land where you are? Do you know their names? This knowledge has been hidden from us as white people, so if you don't know, Just make a commitment to learn. Here in Denver, the front range of Colorado, I've learned the indigenous peoples of this land are the Cheyenne and Arapaho, and I honor them today. So now that we have remembered where we are, let's breathe together for a moment and pray, all right? Let's pray. Let's breathe to give thanks for all the elements, the air that is our breath, the fire that is our passion and transformation, water that is our dreams and visions, earth that is all that nourishes us. 
breathe to give thanks for the ancestors with us, the great cloud of witnesses, for their stories, for whatever good they did, for whatever love they shared. And let's breathe to give thanks for this moment, wherever we may be, to the divine creator of all. Amen. So, here we are on the other side of the inauguration, already seeing the first actions from the White House being attacks on poor and working class folks and on reproductive justice on indigenous folks in North Dakota resisting the Dapol pipeline and lies and propaganda called alternative truths. We see White House web pages dedicated to civil rights, indigenous rights, climate justice, and others disappeared and replaced with a harsh policing statement. We see attacks on DACA and the Federal Congress working hard to take down the Affordable Care Act. And we're seeing, too, attacks at state and local levels, calls to criminalize protests, renewed attacks on LGBTQ folks, and to generally dismantle protections and programs that have long benefited marginalized groups. And we remember, as white folks, we remember that these attacks disproportionately impact people of color in our communities. And maybe we're feeling some encouragement about the massive marches and protests all around the globe, both on Inauguration Day and the following day with the women's marches. And maybe now, too, you're wondering, what happens now? What do we do? Our texts for today have never been more timely. Before we dig into them, though, I want to talk a little bit about a value that's deeply important to Surge, accountability through collective action. This is a core practice for how we go about doing our work as white folk, engaging other white folk in the work of racial justice. In its simplest version, accountability means that we as individuals and as groups are answerable to communities of color for our actions and decisions and that we demonstrate that accountability through relationship and through action, especially collective action. As I have practiced this core value and worked with faith communities on it, I've come to see accountability as a spiritual practice, the spiritual practice of decentering whiteness, of dismantling the power whiteness has in relationships and institutions by admitting that we white folks do not have all the answers and that we can follow, not only lead. Accountability is centering the needs of people of color, their leadership and their liberation as part of collective liberation rather than our own. Thus, it's gonna be messy and a bit anxiety-ridden because it's counter to the norm. It's considered foolishness. The norm which is the centering of white comfort and convenience. So accountability as a spiritual practice requires us to ask, including collectively, what are we going to center here? What are we going to be faithful to? Who are we going to be faithful to? And holding ourselves accountable in our work can and should be risky 
Even though there is a cost to this with our people and institutions, that's what it means to be accountable as a daily practice. And there's a challenging but important consequence for centering liberation in all that we do. And doing the work and taking the consequences is in itself a demonstration of accountability. So hold on to this value of accountability. Trust me, it's going to come into play as we look at our scripture texts. looking at the text for January 29th, week four of the Epiphany season. Our texts are Micah 6, 1 through 8, Psalm 15, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, and Matthew 5, 1 through 12, the Sermon on the Mount, oddly a text used at the inauguration last Friday. Have you read these texts yet? Timely, right? Micah and Matthew are particularly well-known well-worn texts for us. I'm going to try to tackle all four today, so hold on for the ride. So let's start with some things to ponder about each reading, shall we? Micah 6. So Micah's prophetic pronouncements and visions come during a time of political upheaval. The Assyrian Empire is moving in and threatening the small kingdoms of Israel and Judah, And eventually Samaria, the capital of Israel, falls, and Judah is flooded with refugees while also dealing with the continued threat of Assyria. Now Micah is a small town boy. Unlike, say, Isaiah, who had the ear of kings in Jerusalem, Micah is from this tiny town in southwest Judah. He's a rural prophet, you might say. Maybe he grew up on a goat farm. We don't know. But we can guess He has no access to the halls of power, and yet he sees clearly what is happening. I suggest you read around these eight verses in chapter six to get a clear, um, to get clear, to get clear what he sees and who he holds responsible. Read through the whole book, in fact. It's not that long. Because this small town prophet's judgments are not a blanket criticism of all the people. No, Micah is directly taking on the corruption of rulers, those with wealth and power who oppress, who take fields and homes, that is, livelihood and shelter, who collaborate with the empire, who are sellouts, bribe-takers, and quote-unquote prophets who declare war against those who put nothing into their mouths. I wonder, did Micah lose his home, his fields, because he definitely understands that the decisions of the powerful impact those on the margins in steep ways. Check out chapter 3 where he says to the rulers, You who tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones. That's pretty stark. And it's those rulers, those abusers of power that are on the receiving end of the lawsuit being brought by God here in chapter 6. The rulers the elite, who want to know how to please God and offer extravagant rituals that the prophet brushes off as worthless 
in a triplet of directives that sum up the entirety of prophetic and Torah tradition. What does the divine require of you? What are you going to be accountable to? What are you going to be faithful to? Wealth and power and their violent maintenance? Or justice, kindness, and God? The small town rural prophet asks the powerful, which side are you on? Psalm 15. So just a couple of brief points. First of all, this psalm essentially sums up Micah 6, doesn't it? Ethical and moral practice matter, and without them, worship is an empty and even harmful ritual. And second, I just want to note that the psalm is a ritual psalm for admission to the temple. So as a piece of liturgy, we can imagine it as a kind of collective practice, a collective communal reminder of what it means to be faithful as the people prepare themselves to be in the presence of the divine. So that's the psalm. So now for Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Before we jump into, into this, I want to recommend to you one of the greatest resources that I know, the Jewish Annotated New Testament. So if you're committed to disrupting anti-Jewish and Christian supersessionist readings of scripture, the commentary and articles all by Jewish scholars help us understand how the New Testament derives from the heart of Judaism, as the editors say, and to clarify the Judaism of Jesus and his times. And I mention this because utilizing the Jewish annotated, annotated New Testament helped me understand the Sermon on the Mount in a new way that gives, its back, that gives it back its power. So let's remember where we are in Matthew. Jesus had been in the wilderness and he returns to discover John has been arrested by religious leaders who are collaborators with the Roman Empire. Jesus begins to organize. He builds community, his disciples or his learners, and he goes on walkabout teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And the Sermon on the Mount is his first specific teaching recorded by Matthew. The form of this sermon indicated by the use of blessed references Hebrew Bible texts and forms as well as early rabbinical texts, and the language is steeped in Jewish tradition. For example, poor in spirit really means humble, a quality prized in prophetic and later Jewish literature. Those who mourn or grieve means the suffering righteous, that is, those who suffer for the cause of justice, a strong theme in Matthew and Jewish text and tradition. The meek are those who do not take advantage of their position, that is, their power to harm others, another quality steeped in Jewish scripture and tradition. And the meek inherit the earth, which can also mean the land, that is, the land to which they belong. And finally, to be merciful is a highly regarded human attribute in Jewish tradition and one of two primary aspects of God, along with justice, that are lifted up in Jewish scripture. Why does it matter to set the Sermon on the Mount back into its Jewish roots? Let's remember the context. These are poor folks with little access to power, 
They're workers, carpenters, fishers, farmers, tenders of herbs and animals and children. They live in a land colonized by the Roman Empire and belong to a religion whose leaders collaborate with the empire in the pursuit of wealth and power. We might imagine they are the same type of small town rural folk like Micah. Those same religious leaders have just thrown one of this community's teachers into jail because of his teachings and organizing. So try to imagine what might have been going through their heads. And what does Jesus do? He gathers up his people and he sits them down and he reminds them who they are, who they belong to, who and what they're accountable to. He's not making up something new. He's digging deep into their tradition for its resistance tools. He steeps them back into their tradition. He reminds them they don't belong to the Roman Empire. They don't belong to oppressive power. They belong to God, to the empire of heaven. And then he tells them, these humble, meek, small-town folk, he tells them they're blessed, that they're prophets. Imagine. You can hear the Gentiles in Corinth, can't you? Foolishness. These urban citizens sitting in a trade center that's the heart of Roman imperial culture in Greece, well, you can imagine they might think they know a little better than the scruffy prophets from Jerusalem. Even though as Jesus, as Paul, excuse me, as Paul reminds them, they themselves are not the powerful, the powerful, the noble, but they aren't working class Palestinian Jews either. And what's clear is that they are operating by the world's rules anyway. They are holding themselves accountable to the wisdom of the empire rather than God's wisdom embodied in Jesus, a wisdom that the world considers foolish. It's an upheaval of dominance, a reversal of fortunes. We are accountable to Christ crucified, Paul tells them, not Rome. And rather like our text from two weeks ago, you'll find the faithful resistance among the low and despised of the world. And we remember again our Jesus, a poor brown boy colonized, executed by Rome as a rebel. So what are we to make of all this? What are our resistance lessons from these texts today? Whether you're preaching these texts or a lay person in need of these texts, it's the same. It all comes back to accountability. What are we centering? Who are we centering? To what and to whom are we being faithful? Of all of these texts, 1 Corinthians is speaking most directly to us as white folk, especially if we are middle or upper class. We're the ones who have to learn how to shed the wisdom of the empire and center the voices of those like Micah, like Jesus, who come right up out of the communities most oppressed by Rome. Corinth has its own issues, but what Paul is telling us is that what will save us, even us as Gentiles with privileges bestowed by the empire, is following Jesus. 
That's how we find our way from the empire's wisdom to the foolishness of God, the foolishness of following the way of a poor brown rebel young man who is justice, sacredness, and redemption. If we really say we believe in Jesus, this is what it means. That we are accountable to a poor brown colonized small town freedom fighter. That's who we say we believe in, who we follow. That's who saves us, all of us. Remember that salvation in the Bible always has political dimensions. It's not about whether or not we get to heaven because God loves us always. Beyond the boundaries we know of life and death, we are held always. Salvation is about how we thrive in the here and now, everyone, all creation, and affirms God's upheaval of dominant power structures and the centering of the marginalized and the quote-unquote empire of God that is nothing at all like Egypt, like Assyria, like Babylon, like Rome, like the United States. We live God's un-empire when we center justice and expansive steadfast love. We live in God's un-empire when the humble and the meek and the low and the despised and the poor and the grieved righteous are at the center. When we live counter to the values and ethics and wisdom of the empire, then we are blessed. Then we are blessed. Who are we listening to? Who are we accountable to? When we are making our decisions about our money, for example, or what will or won't be staffed, whether we will or won't show up for communities more impacted than ours, whether we will speak or not speak, act or not act, are we centering our convenience, our comfort, our buildings, our profit margins? Or are we centering the small-town, brown-skinned freedom fighters like Micah and Jesus and his crew? We are accountable to Christ crucified. And here's the thing. Matthew and 1 Corinthians end up in the same place. If we embody the Sermon on the Mount, if we consider our own call, we should expect to be reviled by those in power, to be called foolish, to be persecuted. If we are being just, merciful, not using our power to harm, if we are living in ways that are accountable to Jesus, which is to say accountable to those most vulnerable among us, then it will cost us. It should cost us. This is the paradox of our faith. As Bernice Johnson Regan says, when you lay down the world and pick up your cross, it's not good times, it's good news. Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus, for great is your reward. Not power and wealth is reward, but the unempire of God, surrounded by a foolish, loving, blessed community.
whether you're preaching this week or a lay leader organizing for the un-empire, how will you be accountable to the crucified Christ? How will you urge your community to be accountable? What action will you take to live out Micah 6.8? So here are two related actions we offer that show our accountability to our immigrant neighbors in this country. First, with Trump threatening to end the executive order that established DACA, we are asking that folks call Congress to protect these young immigrant folk. The Bridge Act is bipartisan legislation introduced in both the Senate and the House that would provide DACA recipients with provisional protected presence that would protect them from deportation and also allow them to work lawfully. Please call your congresspeople and your senators this week and ask them to sign on to and support the Bridge Act. We'll include more information about the Bridge Act and how to find your representatives in the transcript on our website. Second, we've learned that trade union leaders are meeting with Trump to discuss a jobs bill. There's concern that a, Trump's, a Trump jobs bill would include harsh immigration enforcement policies. Here we get to practice listening to our working class white folks and our immigrant neighbors who are telling us how immigration is used by the powerful to divide working communities along racial lines and that they refuse that wisdom of the world. They refuse to take jobs that are going to split people along racial lines. So we're asking you to call your senators and tell them that we will not support a jobs bill that includes attacks on our immigrant neighbors. And try this. Organize a calling day in your congregation. Collective action. And then make public statements in your newsletter, your social media, wherever, about your action. Don't hide your light under a bushel, which is next week's text, but that's okay. So that's your call to action this week as we practice accountability through collective action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Thank you for joining me today. Next time we'll be taking on the text for February 12th, posting up during the week of February 5th. And I'll just remind you that for right now we're going to be posting every other week until we get a rhythm going and then hopefully every week as we move through these times together. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with me there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. And transcripts will be available as well on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thanks so much. Give God glory,